Welcome to Inside Dance, a podcast that celebrates the Bates Dance Festival dance artists and teachers. I'm Lindsay LaPointe, media supervisor for the festival. Through this podcast platform, we will be bringing you highlights from the festival's discussion panels, community talks, performances, and interviews. We will start at the Portland Museum of Art, where our scholar-in-residence, Lauren Warnicke, sat down with Doug Verone and Netta Yerushalmi for a discussion on dance legacy. The idea of legacy is one that we thought about in putting these two artists on stage together, um, most obviously because Netta danced for Doug. So I think it, um, not to put either of you on the spot, and so either one of you can, can take this, but I want to kind of understand pre-paramodernities, which has nothing to do with him <laughs> or any of your, um, maybe not, or at your specific history dancing with him. But how has your work with Doug, or has it informed how you work as a choreographer and the aesthetic that you put into your own work? Um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> or does it? You can or also, does it? or does it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think uh, what I'm looking at in paramodernities are less um, ways in which, as a community and a culture of dancer, we are very much, or not at all, or less so, um, consciously aware of the, the, you know, the idioms that are traveling through our bodies or through our culture. Um, so, uh, but with. Um, so that, that really depends for each person individually what kind of history they have um, with a certain you know, trajectory or a certain artist, a sort of um, codified technique, whatever. So I met Doug when I was young, and there's, I mean, I'm, um, there's a lot of what Doug does that's in me as a maker, as a dancer, as a person. Um, and uh, there's things that are really specific that I can point to, and, and my understanding of um, how to compose a stage or um, a toolkit, um, my understanding or my ability to work with all kinds of different types of music, um, all kinds of things that happen in the body in, in Doug's vocabulary. So there's really specific things that are very, um, that I can really um, point to. Then there's the things that I don't maybe kind of don't really see or that require looking at, and that's kind of what. Uh, Again, what Emery was trying to say is like in 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 knowing that dance requires uh, um, that the way we we learn how to dance is by working with other bodies in the room and constantly mimicking their their essence and um, doing like them and trying to be good in the way that they want us to be good. That is the beautiful and also problematic kind of practice and. Um, in that, in that act, of, again, of rehearsing, 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 movements, ideas, styles, um, understandings, ideologies, those things get imprinted into our, into our bodies and our psyche. And uh, so then in paramodernities, I'm asking us as a, as a dance community to think about how that's in our bodies. And then I'm asking kind of a larger questions about how does the culture at large see dance as streaming through its veins? Mm -hmm. Or does it? Mm -hmm. That was a long answer to your question. No, and Doug is uh, someone who's had a company for 30 years and had lots and lots of dancers pass through your company. Do you see that? What does it feel like as a choreographer to look at work that has been made by former dancers of yours and either see pieces of yourself or also see that that dancer has just wholly rejected mm -hmm. whatever yeah. you... Um, I, I, I embrace both of that, actually. Um, Partly because I went through it myself. Um, uh, when I was a young dancer, I danced in a loan company for a, a short period of time when I was right out of school, and I danced for Larry Lubavitch for many years. And um, similar to Netta, I, I felt like I learned um, under a mentor of how to, how to create, how to, how to see bodies in space, how to hear music. Um, and I feel like all those things were imparted onto me changed and shifted and then um, uh, have um, kind of permeated my work over the last 30 years. But I, I feel as if um, the hard part for me when I left that company was understanding that there was a voice within me um, and it was 
was acceptable to take the things that I needed to and also to figure out what that voice was, uh, what the vocabulary was, what it was that I needed to say as an artist, um, which was, um, felt radically different than the direction I had come from. So I always pay homage to that uh, and understand that the work has shifted. Um, and you know, it, in 30 years of having dancers pass through my company and having them move on to create beautiful work, um, I, I understand that what that journey is like mm -hmm. uh, and that need to, um, uh, to depart from something that um, uh, you feel is shaping you in order to find something that is your own. Mm -hmm. But do you think that, you know, legacy is such a tricky thing because whether or not artistically you've departed from that, you can still own, you know, you can still own that you were part of that company mm -hmm. and part of that anchor point mm -hmm. in history. So how, how do dancers who are of a next generation from your company sort of distinguish themselves but also weigh the, the benefits, the pros and cons? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I point back to Kimberly Bartosik, who was who's one of our artists in residence this week teaching the Cunningham Method and was part of the Cunningham Company, the Merce Cunningham Company for 10 years, but does not do that mm -hmm. in her work and, and yet finds it as this kind of new anchor point mm -hmm. in, in her career. Um, so how do you, and, and maybe you can both speak to this as having those mentors that you grapple with artistically and what remains in your body from them, but also like just strategically as a, professional trying to put your work out there. Well, it's interesting, uh, you were talking about Kim, I, um, Alex Springer and uh, Zan Burley are teaching um, uh, as part of the festival this year, mm -hmm. and they, um, they're teaching a Verona style um, class. Uh, the work that they do as artists is radically different than, than what they are teaching. Um, and um, it's been interesting, I, and we had this conversation yesterday, that I think that um, the formation of work and how work is being created now on a, in a collaborative nature um, it has changed and shifted um, uh, artists' perceptions of themselves when they leave. Um, uh, you know, I, I definitely work within a style, but I embrace the individual that enters into the room uh, we, have a di we have a creative dialogue, um, uh, sharing ideas. Um, so the, the line, I think, is more greatly blurred of who they are and what the style is. And when they leave, um, I think they have a better sense of who they are as artists that is not maybe directly, you know, they'll share their, they understand their legacy, but they have a greater sense of, of, of who they are individually because the creative process is radically different now than it was 30 years ago. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so when I see Zan and Alex um, staging my work uh, or um, uh, teaching a class that feels like it's been in the style, um, that embrace is, is beautiful and whole, but when they step into a studio to create together, it, I, they, I understand that they're part of a legacy, but they definitely have individual voices mm -hmm. that go beyond that, um, that vocabulary and that way. But that requires you to not feel too super precious, right, about... Someone else's career? Well, no, about, so in, in terms of restaging your work, mm -hmm. somebody else restaging your work, mm -hmm. um, knowing that there's this kind of, if we call it a residue, that remains as it's passed down through generations, and I think this comes back to paramodernities too, it, um, but that it will inevitably change, you mm -hmm. know? Absolutely. We, we talked about that last night. And, and that allows you to not hold on too tightly to the thing that it was, you know, right. and every detail has to be exactly the same, and there's this legal system built around the, the administration of that. So, um, I don't, yeah. Well, I, but I believe that's the beauty of the art form, mm -hmm. that it changes and it shifts, mm -hmm. you know, that um, once you place uh, an idea in, um, in a structure, it becomes a museum. Um, and, um, course we're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I love the idea that every time a dance takes a stage, it's different. 
and it breathes differently and every cast is different as long as it feels like it is the embodiment of the ography I feel like that's the beauty for me of, of um, allowing individuals to dance um, a piece because I feel like that's the beauty of the art form yeah having danced in Doug's work I knew the the, the details that you're talking about yeah. that Doug was trying to hold on to with a new cast had to do with uh, the larger picture and structure and timing and it was never like do this move exactly like this it's like find your way to do mm -hmm. it and if it was problematic that Doug would change it but um, and I think that's particular to Doug's work is him, him seeing the big picture and within it there's a bunch of humans doing fitting into that larger picture and the balance but I think that it's interesting that Alex and Zan having uh, danced for Doug are now having to teach this style, this whole idea that they have to actually more analytically say, well, what is Doug's style? And how do I differentiate? And so then when I'm in the stage or work or whatever, there's actually a set of clear, more analytical, like more, you know, things that you can name that comprise whatever their understanding of what he's doing is, and they and then Doug trusts them to then impart that, and that's the whole, it's like Kimberly is an artist and she's teaching more style, she's invariably gonna inflect Cunningham consciousness with her consciousness. Mm -hmm. And who knows, I mean, what he would think about it, Merce, but just that whole idea that in the end, there isn't like a, you know, a perfect static thing, which is what mm -hmm. you just said. Mm -hmm. And then the question of, of the company or whoever's holding the legacy is, how do they allow or how do they want that thing to continue? Do they see it as a static thing that they mm -hmm. can hyper control and say it's a, an object? Mm -hmm. um, or do they, is our understanding of it something that they're willing to, mm. you know, in some ways, just not know? Yeah. You can't hold on. Yeah, to we're going to get there, but I can't, I can't help think of the you know, relationship between a piece of art that hangs on a wall just mm -hmm. being in a museum that you can have it be this container, but the, uh, but our interpretation of that changes mm -hmm. over time. And when you have something that's a little less tangible, like dance or theater, or we talked about uh, conductors and musicians' relationship to a musical score, that there is a container you can point to and say, like, this is what I wrote, but we don't know what it sounded like when Beethoven's Fifth Symphony was performed the first time. And part of the point is how we work with that and change it and uh, metamorphosize it over time, mm -hmm. right? And who, and who gains power by sort of having ownership over something? Mm -hmm. like that, you know, it becomes Beethoven's fit, and then so if you play it in a certain way, you kind of, you're kind of joining in the club of whatever kind of aura is around that mm -hmm. work. And so that also happens, mm -hmm. right? When, mm -hmm. when history sort of decides with who's anointed, what pieces are masterpieces, Right. And what needs to be continued, and what needs to be, you know, revered and revered and revered. Mm -hmm. and so then there's a bunch of money and power that can be had in relationship to mm -hmm. that. So it's also the, like, do we want our pieces to live on? Is like, mm -hmm. is something that's, you know? Yeah. I think maybe it's a good time to play the trailer yeah. for paramodernity. So um, those of you who aren't familiar can have some reference <coughs> point for Netta's work. I should. This project requires people to really care about different kinds of knowledge and to want to implicate their bodies in this very different kind of space and to be vulnerable. Modern dance, which has been developing for the past century since Bajinsky's rise and fall, is a living testament to the possibility of reading what was never written in the book of our modern political life. Maybe, Bajinsky was trying to say, I am the untouchable because my dancing body which was sacrificed so that the others could live, is no longer really a physical body, but an unsacrificable life that cannot be separated from its form. As a woman, I'm fighting for my life all the time, especially now. You can't talk about a female sexuality, uniform, homogeneous, classifiable into codes, any more than you can talk about one unconscious resembling another. Of course, abstraction can be closeted. The genius is on the high shelf. The high shelf is the history book. You have to go in through the side door. You have to make a mess. Maybe you have to make a mess. Deconstruction is a fancy word for that. 
and uh, the, the, the narrowing down at the very end to six people, which I thought I could manage to do before the premiere date, um, <laughs> uh, was a process of uh, me um, kind of also having to fall in love with certain dances, um, to choose the right Martha Graham masterwork. It was a process of me looking at a lot of dances and falling in love with the one that I felt like I wanted to um, go into. And I mean, and then there's the things that it wasn't about me. It was like Ailey's Revelations feels like it's, uh, it's important, it's unquestionable, and um, it's something to look at. Or, um, yeah, so it was, it was both. It was, it was a, a long process of research, looking at a lot of dances mm -hmm. and talking to a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I think the, the idea of who, who gets that, who owns that, is, is an important one in the context of both your work and also the larger conversation about the canon, you know, yeah. and there, there are questions about like, well, should we just burn it all down and start over because there are obvious points of inequity as part of our history and an audience or a, a person who uh, did the talk, on, you know, came to the talk on Tuesday with us pointed out, which I'm sure has been pointed out in the past, that there's only one woman represented right. and um, one African-American choreographer and everyone else is white and male. Mm -hmm. And so that, that again is the question of who gets to write our history and who, who is recorded as the legacy when there are so many other legacies that can and should be dealt with and celebrated. Um, so I guess I, I'll pose that to you of, of why you made the choice to actually look at that and deal with it rather than just abandon it and say, you know what, that was, that was bad and it is like rife with problems and we're just going to let it go and move on. Yeah, because it, it, it kind of was, was, like I said, it was sort of like, well, this is where we are mm -hmm. with these things. So can I um, subvert some of the stories? Can I complicate some of the stories? Can I ask us to think about these things, not as static? Um, uh, you know, artifice, that, not as static emblems, but uh, as something that we can own. That I can, I can try on this movement, I can have people talk about it in a different way, I could just, you know, subvert the, the, re the rehearsing of the dance history narrative um, by, by posing a different set of, of um, perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a project about, I'm going to rewrite dance history, mm -hmm. not at all. It was like, well, what is, who are the people that we continue to teach and, and look at and can we look at them in a different way? Would that be helpful? Mm -hmm. um, and also, also do people that don't know anything about dance, by looking at the, at, at the people that have shaped our field, um, can we then um, uh, talk, talk with people who are not so familiar with our field and through talking to them, can we understand if our field has larger reach than sometimes it seems? Mm -hmm. So I, I, was think, I, I was thinking a lot about uh, um, recognizable gestures and shapes that the body takes in these, in these very um, you know, uh, paradigmatic dance works and wondering how far they've traveled into the minds and hearts and eyes of, of people that don't look at dance that mm -hmm. much. Is it in pop culture? Is it in body language? Is, is it in, in you know, advertising? Like in what way has dance infiltrated mm -hmm. or has it not? Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to pull that thread a little bit of, of what's changed for you in, in uh, you know, making works for 30 years. And yeah, just tying it back into this idea that sometimes the history books will maybe acknowledge your early career um, as the point of emergence, right? But what, what has changed for you and how do you look at or think about your relationship with things that you made earlier in your career? I remember hearing Madonna say one time, like, I don't even know that person that wrote Like a Prayer. You know, that's not me anymore. And yet, that's what, whole, I mean, you know, Ray of Light is fine, but. <laughs> so, can you just riff on um, that a little bit? Yeah, I, it, I, it's a, mm -hmm. I, I recognize that the work has changed and shifted. Um, and, a lot of that has to do with myself changing and shifting. I, I, I've always believed that the work, and I think it can be true of any artist, it's reflective of who we are and where we are in time. There's just no question about it. An artist can say that and, and deny it, but I think that's true. I mean, every dance is about us in some way um, and where we are in our lives, um, no matter how abstract it is. So I, I recognize that um, as a human being, I have changed and shifted um, 
a great deal of the last 30 years. Um, artistically, when I look at the work that I created early in my career, um, a lot of it feels really formative, a lot of it feels very strict, um, some of it feels very broad, um, and I would say if I was a painter, I, I would say I'm, I'm more of a pointillist now, where I, I, I enjoy the, the moment of going in and really pulling out the tiniest detail, whereas early in my career, I didn't know much about that. Um, it was more about the spewing out of a, a larger palette of, um, uh, of movement, a larger palette of bodies in space, um, and um, that spoke to me a great deal. Um, but I think as I, as I began to change, once again, as a, as a person, um, um, it affected who I was as, uh, as an artist. Mm -hmm. So um, I look back at those works, I cherish them. A lot of them are still in our repertory because I think it's important to um, ha uh, have a broad span of ideas and to be able to embrace that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them I can't look at. Um, and a lot of them I will go back and change. And I think for me that's the exciting thing is when you know, we create, if we reconstruct a work that hasn't been reconstructed for a while is to always go back to its original form and then figure out how I approach it as the artist I am now. Um, and it was a conversation we had yesterday is, you know, I jokingly said if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, what's the version that people will embrace as like the true version mm -hmm. of Dances Like Rise or Lux? Are they the, are they the versions that were originally created or are they, are they the versions that I last um, uh, touched upon? Mm. Um, and I think that they're both really valid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask one last thing of Netta and then I think we'll open it up in case you all have any questions to, to ask them. Um, Paramodernities is a little bit of an anomaly in your choreographic career. It's not what you do or have done. Um, and it is also aesthetically different. And so how do you fold that in to what you do next? How does it, or does it, um, inform anything that you do going forward? Has to. Um, sure. <laughs> no, I'm just done with that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, it, I've been working on it for a very long time, so it's a lot of, a lot of thinking, mm -hmm. um, a lot of time marinating in this um, research. Uh, I'm just hearing Doug speak, and I'm just thinking, like, um, I don't, there is no rep. My work that I made 10 years ago is, is gone. Mm -hmm. So that's just interesting to think about, like, what, what effort, like, I could decide to restate works. It's like it, it's like not prepared to do. It's not something I, mm. you know, include in my in, in my effort uh, economy. And um, so that's just interesting to think about um, whether that's whether that's just different structures of dance making these days mm -hmm. and or preferences or all that. But um, this. This project, Paramodernities, is definitely an anom anomaly because I'm not none of the material is is mine. Mm -hmm. I've stolen all of the dance moves um, <laughs> from us, <laughs> from them. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, the way that it ties into what I make and probably will make is that there, um, I'm really I really care a lot about the body shaping itself like the specific part specific movement, it being really specific. That I just I feel like a graphic designer or something. Like I have an, uh, not, I, I like to be really specific about how the body's shaping itself. So that's something I had to pay attention to a lot extensively in, in trying to mimic these iconic um, physicalities. And I'm, I'm not out of that. So mm -hmm. I feel like moving forward, I'm not able to go back to uh, my own body as a fountain of material because I have this suspicion about authenticity in the body because I spent all this time thinking about how is my body already shaped by other people's bodies. So moving forward, I think I'm interested in continuing to steal from people and to think about um, yeah how, how I continue to steal. 
I think that's where I'm at next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask a question just to yeah. go back? So in 20 years, yeah. if someone says, hey, could you reconstruct Helga? How would you approach that? How would you, like... I thought, I looked at that piece recently. Um, this is a piece I made in 2014. All of the material was developed, like, painstakingly in these really weird, you know, uh, task-oriented, you know, um, scores, and it's really personal, and I don't know if there's a point in doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, but the thing, same thing we talked about yesterday, sort of like, I was saying, I go to see the Graham Company perform Graham, and even though people that have seen the Graham Company performing in the past, they think it's whatever, they don't like it, they don't think it's the real thing. I had never seen it, you know, I hadn't seen it, I wasn't interested in it until recently. And so I'm so grateful that I can see these things live because Mm. there's something valuable to me about seeing her work because it's so fucking weird. Um, (laughs) And it's not, it's just, yeah. Um, So then in, in line with that, it's like, Maybe I should just be less of a purist and less idealistic and just, and just say, yes, I'm going to reconstruct all of my work. It's going to be out of its original context, um, and it's going to be a completely different thing, but at least it will be there in some way. Yes, Sarah Julie. <laughs> um, I can project quite well. A <laughs> question for Netta is, um, I, I would love to hear you talk about what permissions you may or may not have had to receive to work with these I went about doing this not thinking that I should need to get permission since these are not reconstructions the music's the music is absent the organization of bodies and space the choreography is absent um, these costumes are absent the whole logic of the piece is absent the thing that's not absent are individual movements and tiny tiny little sequences um, so my assumption was, I don't need that. Um, and that has rung true and not true, depending on who um, is protecting a certain legacy and what kind of power they think they have over, like what the kind of power they associate with their legacy. Um, so the Graham Company have, have, uh, has, was con- completely not concerned, in fact, very encouraging, and um, said what I repeat often is that we've been around for 90 years, there's nothing you can do to us. Go for it. <laughs> Go, do, do your thing, steal her moves, invite us to the show. <laughs> um, and then, um, so, and then the Cunningham Trust have, have been, uh, uh, I've cooperated, have been very cooperative. There's some there's some ways in which they're uncomfortable, but they're also really curious and supportive. And I've gotten um, I was saying on Tuesday that I got the official letter that they, I can use quotes from Mercy's choreography after the world premiere, the New York premiere, and a bunch of tours. Okay, so that was that. And Ailey. It's a good question because the thing with Ailey was that I was working in the school and I did some versions of this with the students. I broke down Graham and then I broke down some revelations and people from around the Ailey community, people kind of up there, saw it and like, oh, this is a nice homage. And I was like, okay, cool, it's a homage. Um, and then I'm working, I'm working with a scholar with Tommy de France who, lucky for whoever is going to be taking his class next week, um, uh, is an incredible scholar, and he's written a book about revelations and about Ailey's life, and he was in the room with me making this, so I felt, okay, Tommy would tell me if he thought this is really gonna be a problem for them. And so that was another kind of, and then there was Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Ailey Company, invited me to do a work there, and in the process of choosing which work he saw a video of this, he didn't say anything, so I thought, okay, I'm cool. And then I did hear a cup a month ago from somebody that the top, 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 top money people at Ailey kind of had a moment of like, should we pull the plug on her? What should we do? And then they decided to let it go. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of it until last month, after three, three years of doing this. Um, and I don't think they were aware, and I think it was very much a question of money, like was she making money off of Revelations mm-hmm. as, as a brand of, you know, um, which clearly I'm not. But then the, the um, but then the, the um, 
the uh, Valentine Trust, the George Valentine Trust, I had a terrible thing with them, like the legal dispute that was um, gave me more anxiety and a feeling of loss of control and fear than I've ever experienced in my life, which is ridiculous because who cares? Like, why do I have so much fear about something so stupid? But if, uh, they were kind of um, uh, out to get me and really wanted to um, make this not be. Um, and the end, uh, even though my lawyers and the people around me felt that um, fair use as an aspect of copyright law allows people to take work and transform it and therefore have some kind of right, right to original um, quotes and stuff, that the battle wasn't really worth it for me, and um, the things that I would have to do to the work uh, weren't, I didn't want to. It would, it, there's ways in which I could have quoted more and more Balanchine, but the text would have to be more matchy matchy with the dancing, and I didn't want that. So I ended up changing all the steps. So I ended up making a sort of um, a fake, fake agon. Uh, and that was really, really interesting process to make fake agon, make fake Balanchine. And to, and to think about what it is to, what it is to kind of, like, what if I tried to make a pretend a grown dance? Like, what, what, you know, what if I, what, what is that, what is that, what is choreography? How do you, how do they define what they own? All of these things became really interesting to me. I geeked out, and like, what is choreography? How, what exactly of this do you claim you have ownership over? And, yeah. And then Nijinsky's way dead, and who yeah. knows what that dance looked like. Yeah. And then Fosse, the thing about Fosse that was interesting is that the FX show was about to launch yeah. right a week after our premiere in New York. And so somebody on my team ha did hashtag Fosse, and that's when they had somebody hunting for hashtag Fosse's, and they said, take that video down, no hashtag Fosse. Um, but they didn't care about the piece, they just didn't want hashtag Fosse. <laughs> <laughs> They, I don't think they even, they don't care that I exist, the Fosse Burden Trust. So, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> we continue at Indigo Arts with Juma Poe and Jerome Dante Beecham, who discuss their piece, This is a Formation Intervention, that moved throughout the streets of Portland and Lewiston, Maine. <laughs> uh, I'm Juma Tatu Poe. And I'm Jerome Dante Beecham, but you can call me Dante. And uh, <laughs> um, I use a, uh, people normally default to he or they pronouns for me, but I use a whole host. Um, it switches based on the context, and I'm usually fine with that as long as it's coming from a place of respect, but I will correct you if it's not the, if, if it's not the right place. Did I? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, this is this is my first time in Portland. Uh, well, our first time. Our first time. Technically, our first time was last weekend. <laughs> so this is our second time in Portland, um, and we're doing this project where we we have a we we arrived here with a project called Let Him Move You, which is a series of performance and visual artworks. Um, centered around our experimentation with the JSET form. JSET is coming out of the southern U.S. states. Uh, the name JSET is from the majorette line at Jackson State University. Uh, Jackson State majorettes JSETs, and the name of their majorette line is the Prancing JSETs. And Jackson State is a historically black college and university, and Lots of the historically black colleges and universities in the South have this particular kind of a style and culture that follows the tradition of majorette dancing. Um, and the, the Prancing J sets from Jackson are a very popular team. And so they, they've kind of, the pop culture name of J set has kind of followed that team. Even though colloquially it's also known as bucking, this style of dance and, um, and really each HBCU with majorettes that practice have their own style. So J sets from Jackson State University. There's the doll style from a Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There's the, uh, the, the Stingette style from Alabama State University's majorette line. And then you have the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls. Alcorn State University. The FAMU Diamonds. I don't know what the name of their style is though. They're newer. 
Anyway, so, so a whole host of teams. Those are some of the most popular ones, those, the, the first four. And uh, parallel to that in history, there were groups, there are groups of queer, femme, cis men who rehearse in intimate domestic spaces, living rooms, dining rooms, kitchens, closets. Small rooms of like that. Like that size, move all the furniture out of the way and then put about 15 people in there <laughs> and uh, do big choreographies. Um, and then they performed at gay clubs, pride parades, and then eventually reality TV shows and choreographing for music videos. Uh, There's a movie. There was a recently a documentary called When the Beat Drops, released by Jamal Sims, that I think is doing a festival circuit right now and probably will appear on Amazon Prime or Netflix or Logo, one of those streaming services. Um, and so our experimentation around, our experimentation together has revolved around JSET, and that's how we formed this series of works called Let Him Move You. Here in Portland and in Lewiston, Lewiston, Maine as well, we're doing a work in the series that's called Intervention, which was originally and still mostly designed for historically and or predominantly black neighborhoods on sidewalks and in alleyways. The whole series is kind of built around this three-pronged focus of performance spaces, institutional art spaces, which we think of as like gallery spaces, museum spaces, theater spaces. Those are the, the most kind of uh, formal performances, kind of following the, the, uh, the, the audience of that space, following the kind of marketing trajectory of those spaces, uh, dealing with histories of white supremacy that you know, was, is within those spaces, you know, so, so frequently within the lineage of these kind of proscenium and or the revolt to proscenium, these black box spaces and museum and gallery spaces. Dealing with that history and what we're doing, bringing these uh, primarily black queer performers into, into performance in conversation with these spaces. Then we have a, a, a sidewalk track, an intervention track, which is what we're doing here in Portland, what we'll do in Lewiston. And that's uh, usually it's less formal in that it doesn't follow the same kind of traditional marketing structure exactly. Uh, we normally will we'll build a kind of Instagram campaign around it and leave secrets uh, uh, around when we're going to be performing and you know what the context is going to be, what the route is going to be, how long it's going to be uh, leading up to it. And then we'll have like a kind of a VIP list of you know usually black queer folks that we want to privilege with some of the information about where to be so that we make sure that they're there to see it because in thinking about black neighborhoods, you know, historically and predominantly black neighborhoods, like the ones that we have lived in and do live in, um, especially growing up, I'm thinking about the 13-year-old that I was. I was trying to be out of my neighborhood as much as possible. So it's not necessarily just because we're doing the, this work on those sidewalks and alleyways that those folks are gonna be able to see us, so. And then we have the third track, um, which is the least formal of all, which is kind of the, the, these interventions that happen within club spaces. Uh, which often it's like you have to be paying really close attention to know that they're even happening until something shifts and then you know there's a little kind of explosion and then it kind of disappears again so uh, supposedly and then it kind of surges um, so each of these each of these we kind of think of as interventions within the space uh, whether it's interventions within the notion of what is an art institution what happens in an art institution who is presented within an art institution and what lineages are valued within those institutions. What happens on a sidewalk in a black neighborhood? Uh, whose stories are the most visible on, you know, on those sidewalks, in those alleyways? Who feels safe? Who does not feel safe? Um, and then in the club space, you know, amidst all that chaos, what is, you know, what are, what are some moments of like, you know, exquisite sublime order that can just fall out and then, you know, dissolve and fall and dissolve. Kind of, you know, in the, in the way that order does surge and dissolve in those spaces anyway, you know, trying to uh, calculate that and, and, uh, and, and feed into that to help to reveal something additional in those spaces. 
Lastly, we end with Lida Winfield and her collaborators on the piece Imaginary. She led a show-and-tell that broke down the concepts of the work as well as giving a sneak peek. My name is Lida Winfield, and um, I'm going to give you just like a little peek into how I think about myself as a maker. If you don't want to scoot down so you feel like you can see, feel free to. Um, we can sort of step back, too. Um, so, uh, my work is interdisciplinary. It's a mixture of dance and theater, storytelling, spoken word, and visual art. Um, and sort of at the root, I'm interested in how we can uh, be more than one thing, right? So part of what you're sort of hearing inside of this small introduction is that we are all more than one thing, and we, we bring that to our art making, and we, we bring that to the grocery store. Uh, and that all of that sort of mixes up inside of us. Um, and I am also an incredibly, incredibly learning disabled person. I didn't learn to read until I was a grown-up and uh, spent the majority of my education segregated and separate and in a, um, a room where I really only learned how to like steal cars and make out with boys. <laughs> I was very good at both. <laughs> But that didn't really lead to like much potential and really much opportunity. Um, and so I often say that the world of dance was really where I saw possibility. Uh, it was where I learned that I was valuable. Uh, it was where I learned that other people were valuable. And that together we were smarter versus all by ourselves. Uh, and so that educational experience I share with you because it, it's really impacted how I see the world and, uh, and then ultimately what I'm interested in. So I'm interested in education and I'm interested in community and I'm interested in access. And sort of like how do we, how do we come together and what, what do we care about when we're together? What is the thing that we're going to say? What are we going to value? So today when we were asked to think about this show and tell, part of what I'm interested in or part of what our goal is is to make visible our process, right? So we don't need to do that thing in modern dance where it's like a secret and that you wonder what we're thinking. So part of what we wanna do is we wanna share with you our thinking and we wanna invite you in uh, to all the sort of like weird quirkiness of our making. Um, so the premise of this piece, so again, in 2017 I got a um, National Performance Network grant with commissioning partners, the Flynn Center for Performing Arts, Middlebury College, Middlebury Performing Arts Series, The Yard, and Jacob's Pillow. And the idea of that work was about perception. So again, I feel really influenced by having this learning disability, by having this um, segregated, isolated education. And so I started to think a lot about, um, you know, how I imagine who you are impacts your potential. That my imagination of you shapes how you grow. And that's even true when we sit next to each other on the bus and we never talk. And so I started to think about how imagination sometimes is damaging and dangerous, even though we often think of it as like playful and freeing and that's what imagination is. But I think imagination is also sort of the root of racism and sexism and lots of things like that. And so I started to like have all these questions about how is imagination sometimes uh, painful, sometimes awful. And then in that, like sometimes w what is real and what is pretend, and not so much like fake news, but more like, um, you know, again, who, who do you think I am? And how, who do I think you are? And then uh, what, what then unfolds from that? And part of that was also for me like really connected to this image that I was having around success, particularly as a working artist. That I was having lots and lots of feelings about like, I, re I really want to be so successful. And if I could only like get this grant, or if I could only get hired here, I could only perform there, then I would actually be successful. And sort of without them, I'm not. And, uh, and I think that's in my imagination. I think that isn't inherently true, that my success is not connected to just performing at BAM. Though that would be great. <laughs> it doesn't have to just be that. 
or that my joy is not connected just to my like nice hub husband that's in my mind, right? Because when he comes, he might actually be bad, right? It might not actually be good, and there's no way to know that. So uh, that was kind of like a long intro to like try and tell you all the different things I was thinking about. Yeah. So. Um, all right, give you a little sneak peek about sort of what our structure is. So we have most of our work is set, but we have many structured improvisations that happen inside of um, this piece. And so this is an example of one of the improvisations. So Ellen and I are going to tell the same story at the same time that we've never told before. <laughs> and yeah. True, it's going to be a true story that we're going to tell this. No, it's going to not be a true story, but we're going to tell the same story at the same time. Joseph is going to time us just for the purposes of today for you. Um, and then we're actually going to do it twice for you just to show you two different ways that we use it. Yeah? So this is going to be a minute and a half. Is that right? And the rule is uh, that we both have to talk and listen equally at the same time, tell the same story, and you have to start with an image. So give us, a, give us an image. An image like it's an opening picture. It needs to be a picture that we can all picture, not like, Sally felt sad. That's not an image, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's got an image for us? Set a scene. Set a scene. Yeah. The day was gloomy. The day was gloomy. Tell us more. Um, it was evening. Evening. And we're outside. Okay. We're out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> gloomy evening outside. by Matthew Evan Taylor. To find out more about the festival, visit BatesDanceFestival.org. Mm -hmm.